0: Welcome, everyone. I know it's a cold, miserable, wet evening, and as you can see, I think quite a few people are lying on the couch right now under a blanket watching Netflix or a movie or something, so well done for being here, because we are starting a new series tonight called Hear For It. It's a series about the church, and really this isn't about Our thoughts of the church, we want to know God's thoughts of what the church is and what it's all about. And that's what we're going to do over the next while. We're going to look at what God has called the church to be, what he's designed it to be, what what he wants us to be, uh, the role he's called each of us to play. And I say that because every one of us comes into tonight with some kind of idea of what the church is, uh, what, what should happen at church, what the church should do, whether that's shaped by the scriptures or TV or someone around you. That is coming from somewhere. And I think what is so key for us is actually from time to time we go, this is what I believe about something, but why is that? And what do the scriptures actually teach about that? I want to know what God's word says about this thing. And I think this is particularly important for us and really the church globally right now because of the last almost 20 months and what we've been through. I think you, you're well aware of how disjointed church life has been for the last 19 and a half months. I've got uh, the Harbor City Sunday Planner, uh, like Google document on my computer, and I look at that, and gray means in-person, blue means church at home, and it just goes eight weeks of gray, six weeks of blue, well, you know, a couple of weeks of gray, a couple of weeks of blue, and it's been this really weird time where we are the church. And church is actually a bad name for what this is, because it comes from the German word kirch, which means building. Really, the the Greek word for church is the word ekklesia, which wasn't a church word, it wasn't a religious word. It was a word used for a gathering of people meeting together with purpose. We are the ekklesia of God, the, the church of God that gathers together as family for the purposes that God has got for us. And over the last 20 months, church hasn't been canceled, But meeting together as the church has been, on Sundays, in homes, around a meal, I think of how many different events and things we did as a church over the last few years, and how that's been so limited over the last 20 months. And even now it feels like we're getting back to normal in so many ways, but probably the priority and the habit and the purpose of church, the value of church, is probably something that we need to reform in our heads and our hearts. And I read, um, well, I read quite a few different church-related blogs and podcasts, all those kinds of things, and there's a guy named Kerry Newhoff from Canada who writes a lot about church trends and things that are going on. And one of the articles he wrote recently said this shocking fact, most churches find themselves hovering between 30 to 60 percent of their pre-pandemic attendance. It's crazy, crazy. People have moved, you know, things have changed, people are out of the habit of things, people aren't serving and volunteering in the church in the way they did before, financial giving has dropped in churches, and a bunch of churches and ministries have had to close. The Barna Group, another Christian research organization out of the U.S., they said at the end of 2020, that 20% of church attenders said they stopped attending church altogether. Just, I used to go to church, now I don't not watching it, I'm not going, I'm not part of a community, I'm just not going to church anymore. Now I know I don't look like it, but I used to be a really good skateboarder. And when I say used to be, I mean over 10 years ago. And it's this weird thing because I know that was true, because at my bachelor party, I skateboarded and I was rusty. And I think for the last 10 years, I've been thinking to myself, yeah, I haven't skateboarded much in two years. But that's been true for 10 years now. And the reality is something that I love so much, just, I don't know, growing up, getting older, getting busier, having more responsibilities, something that I've loved so much, I just haven't done as much. There's this really lame skateboarder saying that says, you don't stop skateboarding because you get old, you get old because you stop skateboarding, you know? And I think the reality is that for me, I don't think I've gotten older because I've stopped skateboarding, but I've gotten busier. And I still think of myself as a skateboarder and as if it's something I do all the time. But if I hopped on a board now, my muscle memory would be gone. My skateboarding fitness would be gone. I would not dazzle you with my skateboarding prowess. It would probably be embarrassing and I'd probably fall over. And I think it's the same for a lot of people with church over the last while, you know. And maybe that is only 20 months. But for some people, busyness has sprung up. Different things have been going on. New priorities. Church hasn't been happening. It has been and what's happened is we've lost something of our church muscle memory. We've lost something of our church fitness, our church value, our church priority. It's, it's just gotten drowned out in the busyness of life, and that has faded to a degree. And most people who are not around in church probably are still like, well, yeah, I'm a member of a church. I was at church just the other day, not realizing that over time that's becoming bigger and bigger gaps or more and more infrequently. And part of the idea of this series, here for it, is that we want to work those church muscles again. We want to be reminded of the priority of the church, what God says about the church, the value of the church, and what it means for us to be the church. So we're going to be in a very short passage of Scripture tonight, if you've got a Bible. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. We're going to be in a half a verse, normally preach from a longer passage, but this is just half a verse, which I think is such an important, helpful reminder for us about what is important to God My daughter's; she's here for it. (laughs) She loves it. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I'm not going to be speaking about marriage today, but I think it is important just to touch on the first half of that verse before we get into the rest of it. And I think what I want to say to the husbands in the room, or the would-be husbands in the room, that this is a very challenging verse for husbands. If you, if you get down to grips with what this means and what this is calling you to, this is really radical about laying down your life for a wife that God would give you and entrust to you. Husbands are called to love their wives with the same selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love that Jesus has for the church, the same love that led him to the cross to give everything for his bride, the church. It's insane. And the other thing we need to have in mind as we read that, is that the church is far from perfect. The church is not a perfect bride, not necessarily even a deserving bride, but Jesus loved her so much that he went and he gave everything for her, to love her, to serve her, to strengthen her. He died for her, for us, for his church. And the implication for husbands is pretty obvious and pretty challenging. It's saying if you want to be a husband, a leader in a home, that you have to be willing to lay down your life in the same way that Christ did for the church. Lay yourself down, lay lay down your wants, lay down your needs, lay down your comforts, lay down your priorities so that your wife could be built up and strengthened. It's very challenging. It's very beautiful. And I want to say, I think marriages have been under a lot of strain over the last two years. People have taken huge hits. There's been a lot of pressure and trauma just stacked on top of people that have added pressure to marriages and to communication and to already existing relational challenges and realities. So I want to say to husbands and would-be husbands who are here, maybe even listening to this as a podcast, what does this require of you? What does Ephesians 5.25 require of you or ask of you right now? And I would say the first thing it would say is if your marriage is not in a hot place, It means for you to lead by loving, lead by initiating, lead by doing something to serve your wife and strengthen your marriage and build it up and love her well. Because marriage is work. Sometimes really, really hard work to see something built up that is beautiful rather than torn down. And this is never gonna happen on accident. This is something we need to intentionally build and work at. This is a paraphrase of something I heard a preacher say a few years ago. But if some of us worked on our marriages as hard as we worked at our jobs, we'd be living in constant romantic bliss, red emoji hearts everywhere, it would be the dream. And on the other hand, if we worked at our jobs as hard as we worked on our marriages, we'd be fired. (laughs) And I think that can be the reality. For some people, we get into these bad habits, and all of a sudden, no energy is going into the relationships that matter most in our lives. For any of us who are married or desire to be married in the future, we want to hear this verse. There's a call to love one another, to lay down our lives for one another as Christ has for the church. But again, we're not talking about marriage or husbanding today. We're talking about the church. And in this half verse, we learn that Jesus loves the church and that he laid down his life on the cross for the church. And for some of us, that can be a bit surprising, because growing up, that wasn't the gospel message I responded to. You know, if you've been in church for a while, if you had a moment where you responded to Jesus and you said, I want to follow him, I want to be his disciple, I want to be saved, I want to be forgiven, whatever it is, I had never heard this as a gospel message before. I responded to something, as Luke was saying, that was a lot more individualistic and a lot more personal and a lot more about me, that Jesus wanted to be the Lord of my life, that Jesus died on the cross for me, that Jesus wanted to come into my heart and live inside of me and have a relationship with me. There's a lot of me's in that. And I heard that if I was the only person on the earth alive, that Jesus still would have come and still would have died for me because he loves me that much. And that's 100% true. That is all so, so true. It's just not the whole story. One of the verses I remember memorizing when I was a new Christian is John 3:16. It's probably the best-known scripture in the Bible. But for me as a new Christian, I read this, I heard this preached, I memorized this, and it exploded in me like dynamite because if this was true, this was incredibly good news. John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever that's, that's broad. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I read that and I thought, okay, what is that saying to me? That's saying that God loves me. That Jesus died for me and my sins. That if I would believe in him, eternal life would be mine. I could enter into relationship with God. Now, that changed my life. But in hindsight, I did read that with a very individualistic lens. I think the way I read that was, for God so loved Grant Newman Clark that he gave his only son. That if Grant would believe in him, Grant would not perish, but Grant would have eternal life. And that is true. That is completely true. It's just not in there. You know, my name is not in there. I want to personalize that, but our names are not in there. It says, for God so loved the world. And he's trying to stretch it out. And we've got to see that because what we see in the scriptures is something that is not just what our hyper-individualistic culture says about our salvation and our relationship with God and our calling and our purpose, as Luke shared at the end of worship. But actually, the scriptures tell us that yes, God loves you. And as we're seeing tonight, that God loves the church and that God loves the entire world. We need to see the whole picture. We we want to understand all three elements. And when Paul writes to the church about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he emphasizes the middle part, that Jesus loves the church. And not only that he died for you, but that he died for the church, that he laid down his life for the church. Now, if you read and study the Bible and you look at the theme of church, there are a lot of metaphors and illustrations for what the church is and how the church operates and all of that. Probably some of my favorite are out of the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians, there are four main pictures for the church. The church's army, the church's family, the church's bride, and his body. Now, if you were part of Harbor City before lockdown, so 2019, 2018, something we said nearly every week was the church is not just an event you attend, but a family you belong to. Church is not just a building, church is a community on mission, those kind of things. And we were emphasizing these truths that the church is a family and the church is an army. The church is a family with a purpose. We're called by God to share his gospel, to make disciples, to advance his kingdom, to walk with him in this life. And tonight what I want to do is I want to emphasize those other two pictures, that the church is a body and that the church is a bride. So we're going to start with the fact that the church is the bride of Christ. Our city, Durban, and this is not uncommon in the cities of the world, but our city is full of people who've had experiences with Jesus. You know, my my first experience probably was when I was 10. I was at a youth camp. Someone shared a message and said, who wants to go to heaven when they die? And I said, said, it's the easiest decision you'll ever make. Well, sorry, it's the biggest answer you'll ever make. I said, no, it's not. Everyone wants that. You don't want the other place. You want heaven. But as a 12-year-old, I feel like this started to go deeper in me. Jesus was calling me to himself. I responded again. There have been a series of surrenders, a series of responses throughout my life to the different things God has been calling me to. But for so many people in our city, there's been a moment where they've responded to something Jesus is saying to them, and they've entered into some form of relationship with him. And for whatever reason down the line, they found their, themselves with some kind of knowledge of God, but outside of a church community, outside of a group of people where they are living out of their faith together. And add to that, that over the last few years, there have been a ton of books, blogs, podcasts, videos made by people who say that they love Jesus, but not the church. You know, I love Jesus, but not the church. It's become a really, really popular and common saying. And it's very easy for us to be deeply influenced and shaped by those things rather than saying, well, I understand that, but what do the scriptures call us to? What does Jesus ask us to to do? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus in light of the church? What role does the church play in all of that? Let me maybe pitch it this way when we think about this idea of I love Jesus but not the church. I've been married for almost 10 years. And if I had a friend come up to me and say, Grant, can we talk about something? I'm like, for sure. It's like, listen, it's going to be a bit awkward. like, come on, lay it on me. What are we talking about? And they say, Grant, you know how much I love you. I'm like, yeah, I've got it. What's going on? You know how much I love spending time with you, want to do stuff, want to go away with you, want to hang out during the week. I'm like, yeah, I've got it. Grant, I want to do all of that with you, but not with your wife. I love you, but not Michelle. That would be so awkward. (laughs) I don't know how you would respond if that was you. If, if you've got a friend coming to you just saying, I really don't like your wife. I don't wanna do things with her anymore. I, I want you, I want the friendship, but it's just gotta be the two of us. She can't come anymore. I would be furious. You know, I'd have to do that deep breathing exercise to try and calm myself down and go, okay, because this is my wife. This is my number one person, someone I love deeply. You know God has called us one flesh he's joined us together it's not like a, a one or both deal it's we're a package deal we come together if you want a relationship with me you need a relationship with her too that that's how it works i would be so bummed i'd be so disappointed how can you say you love me but then tune my wife it just doesn't work that way and we know people we've gotten into a relationship with someone they've fallen in love they've prepared to get married And their family have said, we don't like your bride. We don't like your fiancé. We don't like your choice. They've been cold to her. They've been mean to her. They've been rude and offish. And it's driven a wedge between them and their son. I'm sure there's many different situations like that. Their relationship has been irrevocably hurt by the way they have treated this person's bride. And those things are true. And if that is true, how much more do you think Jesus feels When people reject his bride, when people insult her and make fun of her and tear her down, how do you think he feels about our words and deeds against his church? Do you think God is fine with someone saying, hey, I love you, but not your bride. She's ugly. She's imperfect. You know, all the hypocrites inside of her. Your church is flawed, God. I don't want anything to do with your church. I don't even know what you're thinking, God. You've committed yourself to the church, but she's horrible. Bad choice, bud. God would be furious with something like that. To say that we love Jesus but hate the church is unthinkable. They're a package deal. If you want one, you get both. They go together. And relationship with Jesus for us means relationship with his church. It has to. We can't have one without the other. In Acts 20 verse 28, we read this charge to the elders or the pastors That we are called, I am called, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, the church is called the church of God seven times in the Bible. That doesn't sound that interesting. You're like, cool, Grant, the church of God. But I think that's important because the church is God's idea. The church of God, not the church of man. Church isn't some person's idea back in the day where they thought, hey, if we're going to follow this guy, maybe we should do it together. I like preaching, I'll stand up, you know, you're decent at music, we can make this thing work. The church is God's idea. What the church does is God's idea. This isn't a man-made idea. And here we see that not only is it his idea, but that Jesus gave his own blood for the church. He died for her. He laid himself down for her. And here Paul writes to pastors and he says, okay, guys, you need to care for the church. Why? Because Jesus loves the church. This is his bride. This is the thing he cares about most in the world. So you need to care for the church because this is top priority to God. He's paid a huge price for her. He's given everything for her because she matters so much to him. Isaiah 62, verse 5: As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God loves the church. I was at a wedding yesterday. And I watched a groom respond to his bride. Now, I've seen a bunch of them. You know, as a pastor, I get this privilege of standing here groom, bride. I'm in the action, the spit zone, seeing it all happen. And there have been those moments where the groom ugly cries or heaves. I mean, my chest heaved as Michelle walked down the aisle. I was really overcome with emotion. Some guys just have that goofy look on their face. You know, it's my wedding day, you know, it's my bride, I'm married, whatever. Yesterday, the groom just had a big cheesy grin, just huge teeth throughout the day. Every time I saw him, just massive, massive smile, which is not normal for him. He's not grumpy, but he's not as big of a smiler as he was yesterday. And if you think of those moments where you've seen grooms just in love with their bride, that's what God is saying he feels about the church here. Isaiah 62 verse 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God loves the church. He loves his people. And if we are true followers of Jesus, if, if we're going to value what Jesus values, we must care about the things that he cares about the most. So that's the church as the bride. What about the church as the body of Christ? In Acts 8 and 9, we see some really scary moments in the early church moments of persecution and attack and pressure. In Acts 9, verse 1 to 6, we see this. But Saul, Paul the apostle, And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. Just to make sure this is clear, Saul that is having this experience here is Paul, the great apostle, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, real hero of the faith. He's the one who wrote Ephesians 5 verse 25. Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. And this is before he becomes a Christian. He's persecuting the church. He's killing Christians. He's taking Christians to court and having them sentenced and having them flogged. He hates the church. I love that phrase, "breathing out murder and threats." He doesn't sound like a chilled, laid-back guy. He was furious. He's angry, hates the church, and has this encounter with Jesus where his values change, his life changes, his mission changes completely. The man who wrote that Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her is a man who used to hate the church and try to tear it apart piece by piece. And we read this, Acts 8 verse 1 to 3, Saul approved his execution. He's talking about Stephen, one of the early deacons in the church. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Isn't that crazy? Breathing out threats and murder, ravaging the church, trying to tear it apart. And here he has this encounter with Jesus where he sees him and his life has changed. And he begins to follow him and gives his life to serve the bride gives his life to build up the church, the body of God. And there's this moment here in Acts 8 and 9. Paul's on his next crusade, going to the next place, killed this guy onto the next, torn apart this community onto the next. And it's like Jesus taps him on the shoulder and says, Paul, can we like just pull aside for a sec? Can we have a little heart-to-heart and talk about what you've been doing? And this moment here, it feels like those moments in films where there's like a weedy guy, hero in the story, at a bar playing pool with a friend or something like that. He he shouldn't be in this place, it's a bit of a rough place. And one of the big guys in the bar comes up to him, you know, wanting to cause trouble. He's in leather, lots of tattoos, had a few beers, and he wants to fight. And you're just worried about what's gonna happen because there's no ways this guy's gonna be able to fight the other guy. So you're waiting to see him get pummeled. And then an even bigger guy comes out of the crowd more leather, more tattoos, much tougher. And he says, What's going on here? And the bully goes, Ah, and he says, if you've got a problem with him, you've got a problem with me. You're wanting to start something. And the bully goes, No, 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 no. It's all fine. Sits down, finishes his beer, the pool carries on. That's what's going on here, in a sense, is Paul has been the bully who is threatening the church, ravaging the church, killing Christians, beating them up in the bar. And Jesus comes out of the crowd and taps him on the shoulder and says, you've got a problem with the church, you've got a problem with me. There's something going on here. Do we need to get into this a little bit more? Jesus steps into the fight and he speaks to Paul. And I love this because these are his actual words, at least written down in Scripture. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now we know from the story that Saul has been persecuting the church. Jesus is gone. He's been persecuting the church, killing Christians, tearing churches apart. But Jesus says, why have you been persecuting me? Why have you been attacking me? Jesus is saying here that anything said or done against the church, he takes it personally. It's said or done against him. And Jesus is basically saying, I so identify with my church that if you say something against the church, you do something against the church, it's against him. He and his church are so close. It's his body, it's his bride. Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for her. But that doesn't mean that the global church dotted all around the world in little Jesus communities like this one is perfect. The church is flawed. The church is imperfect. The church makes mistakes. People hurt one another. We don't have everything together. People say this is a hospital for sick people, you know, we're coming in here to be healed. We're coming in here to grow into christ We're not perfect. Things go on in the church which shouldn't be that way. And you know that because you and I are imperfect. We're flawed. We mess up. We make mistakes. We hurt one another. We, we know that is true. So, of course, the church isn't perfect. And I know this. You know, one day you'll be hurt by the church, maybe in a small way or in a big way. But really, when we say the church, we mean people in the church. Someone will let you down. Maybe it'll be me. Someone will say something against you, sin against you, disappoint you, let you down, not do what they say they would do. And in that moment, the question is, how will you respond when you've been hurt by the church? Because it does make sense, especially in some extreme situations, that you're hurt by someone or something that goes on in the church and you say, I'm out, I'm going to withdraw, I can't do this anymore. I love Jesus, but not the church. It makes sense that that happens from time to time. Some people have been terribly hurt and abused and mistreated in the church, and I understand if church has been an unkind, cruel, hard, un y place, why people would withdraw and say, "I can do this on my own." I can read my Bible at home. I've got a good Bible. I can listen to some good worship. You know, I've got some good music on iTunes. I've got the best preachers in the world on podcasts. I don't have to listen to Grant or anyone else. Can pour my own grape juice, you know, little wedges of bread. I can do this at home on my own without the hassles of people. You know, I don't have to deal with their problems and them sinning against me and hurting me and failing me. I don't have to serve if I do it at home. I don't have to give financially. I don't have to be inconvenienced. I don't have to get out of bed on a Sunday afternoon when it's cold and wet and I want to watch Netflix. I can just do this at home. I get it. And if you are that person or, or you know someone who has gone through this, where they've been so hurt that they go, I love Jesus, but not the church. What is the point to keep engaging with the church? Why stay? Why continue to serve and play a part? My answer would be because God knows what is truly best for you and I. And He knows that the imperfect church is the best thing for you and I. To be in a community of imperfect people like this, where we rub shoulders and iron sharpens iron and We have to practice forgiveness and practice love and practice getting over things and forgive and have hard conversations and love one another and serve people who are awkward and we don't get on with as well as some other people and all of that. God calls us to commit ourselves in these imperfect communities of people that are learning to practice the way of Jesus together in an imperfect place. And you and I do that. We gather on Sundays at life groups with one another We have conversations, so we let one another down. We practice this way of love and grace and forgiveness and truth, even though sometimes it can be very, very awkward. I think we probably all love the good, fun, easy parts of church, you know? Some events are amazing. Some experiences are amazing. We're here for it. Like any of that stuff, sign me up. I want to do it. But every now and then, following Jesus requires those awkward things, Like, I need to confront Eugene on this thing he said. I'm the only person who can do it, so I need to have a hard conversation and just say, hey, Eugene, you were really unkind to Mike. Like, I actually think you need to apologize to him, call him out, call him back to the way of Jesus. That's hard. What's even harder sometimes is when someone comes to you. Miles comes to me and says, Grant, I don't know if you realize, but this is something you did. I think you need to repent. I think you need to apologize to that person. You shouldn't be doing that. And I have to have the humility and the maturity to say, not Miles, I want to knock you out. You know, I love Jesus, but not the church. Like, I'm out of here. Because Miles can really be such an abrasive guy. <laughs> that's not. I'm just teasing you. Miles is, what a sweetheart. But to actually say, Miles, that's really hard to hear, but it's true. Thank you. Thank, that, it's hard. It hurts. I don't like it. I don't like you right now. But I needed to hear that. Thank you. That's hard. Sometimes hard to serve and lay down your life for other people, especially when they're difficult and unkind and unthankful. You don't connect with them as well. But as we practice this, we are practicing the way of Jesus. We're practicing being the church, and God is using it to form us more and more into his image. I think we all struggle with these things, with other people's sin, with the disappointments of life, with those awkward and uncomfortable moments in church life. And I want to put this thought out to you, if you've been disappointed by the church, if you've thought, "I love Jesus but not the church." Have you ever thought about the fact that God has the same struggle with the church, but far worse than we do? Because we see little bits and pieces of the flaws of the people in the church. We experience a little bit of the sin of each other in this space, but God sees it all. God knows it all. Every bit of hypocrisy, every bit of sin or evil, every failing, every disappointment, every unkind word, every bit of gossip, God sees it all, he knows it all in his beautiful bride, the church, and he stays committed to her. Isn't that incredible? C.S. Lewis, in an essay called The Problem with X, says this, don't say it's all very well for him, for God, he hasn't got to live with them, he has. He is inside of them as well as outside of them. He is with them far more intimately and closely and incessantly than we can ever be. Every vile thought within their minds and ours, every moment of spite, envy, arrogance, greed, and self conceit comes right up against his patience and longing love and grieves his spirit more than it grieves ours. I say that because God has got much more reason to give up on the church than you and I do. Much more reason to say, I don't need this, because he doesn't. You know, the Bible says where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is. It's not for his sake, it's for our sake. You know, it would be so much easier for God to say, oh, I've done so much for these people. Now they do this. I'm not going to meet with them this Sunday. I'm not going to meet with them as they gather in my name. I don't need this. I'm going to do my own thing on Sundays. I've got better things to do with my power and omniscience and glory. Forget about the church. But if God chooses to stay committed and to love and to care for and to serve and to give himself to his bride, the church that Jesus laid down his life for, how much more should we value and prioritize the bride of Christ in our lives? Jesus loved the church so much that he gave his life for her. He knows our sins and he chooses to love us anyway. He knows the worst, most intimate details of our lives. He knows the most shameful things. He knows it all. He's seen it all. He was there through it all. And on the cross, all of that stuff was placed on Jesus so that we could be forgiven and washed clean and set free and given a new start and made righteous and given a new identity in him. Jesus loves the church. And because of that, he died for her. A few years ago, I learned about um, level one, level two, and level three, love. Maybe you can think about where you are on the scale. But level one love is selfish love. So hopefully all of you are going, no, nah, that's not me. Level one love is selfish love where you say, I'll love you if you give me this. Really, it's loving ourselves because we're loving someone so that we can get what we want from them. Level two love is similar. It's love as an exchange. It's when we say, I will love you if you love me back. No, it's kind of a tit for tat you scratch my back I scratch yours kind of love you love me I love you but level three love is unconditional it's the kind of love that you exchange at weddings as you share vows and make a covenant it's saying I commit to love you no matter what I'll love you whether you love me back or not whether you're kind to me or not whether you serve me or not I am committed to loving you come hell or high water For the rest of my life. And that is the kind of love that God has towards each one of us. It's the way he feels towards us. Whether we fail him and let him down. Or whether we serve him faithfully. He is unconditionally committed to love us. And to love the church. And to love the world. And that love that we experience as we come to know him more and more. Is the love that he has called us to share with the world out there. In Ephesians 3 we read this. You see God the creator planned the church from before the beginning of time have you thought about that before Ephesians 3 verse 10 it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord again I want to say the church is God's idea not man's idea The fact that before anything happened, before Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, before then God had the church in mind. He knew he was going to have a church. He knew that he was going to call his people together for his purposes in this world. He knew even then. And it is now through the church that God's church shares God's message and God's hope with the world. The eternal wisdom of God is shared with men and women, ordinary people. The people you see every day, through us, as we spread out around the city tomorrow to do what he's called us to do. It is through the church, through us, that the wisdom of God is scattered and spread around the world. Harbor City, when we give our lives to Jesus, we give our lives to his church as well, so that his purpose can be fulfilled in our world. See, the church is never going to be perfect, in this life at least. When Jesus comes back, she will be. She may be an ugly bride at times. She may let you down at times. You might see her warts and all her imperfections more often than not. But why don't you, rather than saying, I love Jesus but not the church, say, I love Jesus and I'm committed to building his church. I love Jesus. I'm committed to playing a part in beautifying his church. I love Jesus. I want to be part of what he's doing through his imperfect church in the world. Because it's through the church that God's mission is being fulfilled everywhere. And if Jesus has called you to himself, if you want to follow him, then we want to say, kind of along with the series, along with these passages, I'm here for it. I'm here for the church. I'm here for what God is doing through his church. I'm going to pray for Harbor City. I'm going to pray for the church around the world. I'm going to pray for the churches of Durban. I'm going to play a role in this church. I'm going to be committed here. I'm going to serve. I'm going to pray. I'm going to attend. I'm going to use my gifts to minister to the other people. And that requires taking some time to say, God, how have you wired me? What have you put in me and given me? And now how can I do that in this community? Maybe it's in secret, just praying at home, praying for people. Maybe it's something else where you say, God's got something for Cornet today. How can I facilitate that? How can I serve her or love her, minister to her? Actually, what is it God has put in me that this community needs at this time? Inviting friends and family on Sundays into life groups, giving financially so that the mission of God can advance, forgiving people, loving people, and caring for people, rather than doing the easy thing of saying I'm out when things get hard. Being the church that Jesus has called us to be. Jesus loves the church, and He died for her. Can I ask you to stand with me? Can the band wall, huge Neil? Can you guys come forward? Today, I'd love you to respond in your seat in whatever way actually you feel that God has called you to. Maybe um, for some of you, there's something very, very clear that you know God is saying to you tonight. I think for some people, it could be that God is speaking to you about loving the church, and you go, you know what? I don't love the church as much as Jesus does. Maybe that's what it is, and you have to say, God, heal my hurt with the church. Help me to love the church the way you do. Or maybe it's that God has got a role for you to play here and you feel him tugging on your heart saying, okay, I need to take that next step. Thank you, August. What is that next role, that next step that maybe you're called to play? Maybe God is calling you to prioritize Harbour City in a new way. There's actually something he's saying, this is what I want you to do. This is the role you need to play in this community. Maybe it's a decision, actually God wants me to join this family. This is where I'm gonna serve him. Maybe it's another next step. What is your next step in following Jesus? What is your next obedience? What is your next response to him? I think maybe for some people, it's even just a decision to let go of some things that you've been holding for a long time and to say, God, I trust you to make that right. Or maybe today it's the decision to say, I actually wanna follow Jesus. I I, I wanna make him my Lord. I need His forgiveness, I need His grace, I want to live in His truth. Just as the band sings this last song, will you respond in your own way to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you? Let's go out with the song as a prayer for ourselves.